Well, I was uh, reading an article the other day because the headline caught my attention. It said, scientists discover planet killer asteroid hiding in the sun's glare. I thought, okay, you've got my attention. I need to see what's going on here. So start reading the article. Well, it turns out there were actually three asteroids that were unable to be seen because they were hiding in the sun's glare. That's pretty concerning. And two of the biggest ones were over a mile wide, which is the size that scientists refer to as planet killers, <laughs> a loving term they give to those uh, asteroids. And this is what they said would happen if they were to hit Earth. They said it would have a devastating impact on life as we know it. Uh, dust and pollutants would fill the atmosphere for years, cooling the planet and preventing sunlight from reaching Earth's surface. It would be a mass extinction event like hasn't been seen on Earth in millions of years. Now, thankfully, they said that in this case, none of the asteroids were most likely going to hit. And just as you're starting to feel good and like everything's nice, they said they reminded the readers of this, that we are long overdue for such an impact and that one day life on Earth will, in fact, be ended by a similar type of collision. Well, great. All right. So there's your happy reading for the day. So I'm reading this article and I start thinking, well, that's pretty concerning news. They're saying that one day this is a guarantee that something like this is, in fact, going to happen. And, and when you hear that, maybe you start wondering things like I was wondering, like, am I going to be around when that kind of event takes place? Uh, am I going to be safe? Is my family going to be safe? Will scientists have figured out a way to protect us at that point? Is there anything we can do? Is it at all avoidable? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not a scientist and I'm not a prophet, so I can't answer those questions for you. But what I can do is I can tell you with absolute certainty that there is something far worse than an asteroid that is coming. Something more devastating than dust and pollutants. Something more catastrophic than mass extinction. And here's the good news. It is completely unavoidable. The Bible tells us that all people, without exception will have to stand before the judgment throne of God on Judgment Day. And on that day, God is going to pronounce his final verdict over all of humanity. For, for many, he is going to welcome them into glory where they will get to dwell with him and be with him forever and praise God for that. But for others, the heavy hand of God's righteous judgment will fall upon them. And on that day, he will pour out the full force of his righteous wrath and sentence them to an eternity in hell. And that is far more terrifying than any asteroid hiding in the sun's glare could ever be. The Bible says that when Jesus returns to usher all people to the throne of God for judgment, that day is going to be so terrifying that many people are going to begin, according to Revelation chapter 6, calling to the mountains and rocks, saying, Fall on us! Hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That's how terrifying that day is going to be, that you literally are going to have people begging mountains and rocks to fall on them and hide them from the face of God. But here's the thing. Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't really thought too much about Judgment Day. 
You put, you put it out of your mind, out of sight, out of mind. You don't think about it too much. You don't really think about what's going to happen on that day or if you are going to be secure in your salvation on that day. I never did until something happened. I had been a Christian for about two months, and life was great. I was young, and I was naive and ignorant of all things theological, so life was just smooth sailing for me. And I was at a Bible study with a bunch of people who had been Christians for many years at that point. And the guy leading the study said something in passing that really messed me up for years. Because just kind of in passing, this is what he said. But that has to do with whether or not you can lose your salvation, and we don't need to talk about that. And then he moved on. And I was thinking, well, yes, we do need to talk about that. I was like, oh, here I am, a brand new Christian, thinking everything was great. I had repented of my sins, as I was told to do. I had trusted in Christ, as I was told to do. I thought I was guaranteed to get to go to heaven. And now here this guy is putting some thought in my mind about there's a possibility that I maybe could lose my salvation one day. And let me tell you something, folks, that really caused me a lot of concern for many years. I worried for years that every time I messed up and sinned, I would lose my salvation. I would need to get re-saved. I used to worry about what kind of things would actually cause a person to lose their salvation. And have I done those things or am I going to do those things? I used to wonder what would happen if I died during one of those times when I was not quite sure about my salvation. And I used to worry and worry and worry because I knew that I needed to have salvation in Christ in order to make it through the final judgment safely. But my question was, how can I know for certain that my salvation is permanent? How can I be sure that I will always be saved? That's exactly what the Christians in Rome were wondering as well in this letter. Paul had told them that they had salvation in Christ but they were wondering, well, yes, Paul, but will we always have this salvation? What secures our salvation? Is it a permanent salvation? And again, maybe you're here this morning, and if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've probably thought these same thoughts at some point. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've probably doubted your salvation at some point. You've said something or done something that has made you ask yourself, am I really a Christian at all? And you might be wondering this morning, I know that I've trusted in Christ, but will I always be saved? Is there any way to have a 100% absolute assurance of eternal salvation? And as you can see, the question we want to consider this morning is, how can we be sure that the salvation we have now is a permanent salvation? How can we be sure that the salvation we have now is actually a permanent salvation? Well, I want you to notice what the Bible says there. Look in Romans chapter 5 and starting in verse 9. This is what the Bible says. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Uh, if you want to say a couple things about the Apostle Paul, one of the first things you always want to say about him is, he was a logician. Paul was not a poet. He was not very artsy. This man was pure reason and logic all the time. And if you read his writings, he frequently utilizes high-level argument techniques, which is actually what he's doing here. This is an argument technique known as arguing from the greater to the lesser. 
Meaning, basically, that if the greater or harder thing is true, then the lesser, easier thing is also true. And I know what you're thinking there. You're thinking, Pastor, please, please, I am begging you. Do not go on a five-minute rant about logic and argumentation. Please don't do that. I'm not going to, okay? We're not going to do that. But I just want you to understand that we think this way all the time. Even if you're not familiar with the title of the type of argument, we think this way all the time. So if you're watching college football yesterday, which many of us were, and the kicker for your team, let's say he can kick with consistency a 55-yard field goal. Well, if he can do that, which is pretty hard to do, it's safe to assume that he can kick a 20-yard field goal, right? If he can do the greater, harder thing, he can do the easier, lesser thing. Or if you're thinking in terms of politics, if there is a conservative running for president and he is able to win a traditionally blue state, really hard thing to do, we say, well, of course he can win a traditionally red state. That's quite easy to do if you're a conservative running for president. So if you can do the greater, harder thing, then you can also do the lesser, easier thing. Well, that's exactly the type of logic that Paul's using here. He's saying, listen, folks, God has already done the greater thing, justifying us by the blood of Jesus. He can certainly do the easier thing and protect us from his wrath on judgment day. You see, the greatest obstacle to our eternal salvation was our sin problem. Our sin separated us from God. It created this infinite chasm between us and God, and there was no way that we could get back to God because of our sin. Our sin corrupted us so much that we could never overcome our own sin. We could never close the distance between us and God. And so there we were in our sin, left in this entirely helpless and hopeless situation. We were enemies of God. We were distant from God. We couldn't redeem ourselves. We couldn't overcome our own sin. We couldn't even stop sinning if we wanted to, but we didn't even want to. We just kept indulging in sin over and over and over again. And here's what makes it even worse. No amount of good behavior or obedience or religious activity would have been enough to get us back in good, right standing with God. That was our situation. That was the greatest obstacle to our eternal salvation. And so God's verdict over all of humanity was guilty. And the punishment was eternal damnation. But God. <laughs> then comes the good news, right? And what wonderful words those are in Scripture when we read them. But God did not leave us in that helpless and hopeless situation. The Father had formed a plan even before the foundation of the world to redeem people in and through His Son. And so the Father sent His Son into the world. Jesus then lived a perfect, sinless, obedient life for us in our place. When He did that, He was satisfying God's requirement of perfect obedience and righteousness. But then the Bible says that Jesus went further. Because Jesus didn't just live for us. The Bible says that Jesus died for us. He died in our place. You see, God requires payment for sin. A payment that no one in here can make and uh, actually satisfy God's requirement. And so God, by His grace, decided that He Himself was going to pay the price for our sin. And He paid it with the precious blood of Jesus. 
Jesus shed his own blood for our sin. And when he did that, this is what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by means of his own blood. Thus, and here's one of the best phrases in all of Scripture. I want you to read this. Thus, securing an eternal redemption. I want you to notice that, folks. When Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood for us on the cross, he secured forever an eternal redemption. And so the Bible teaches us that when a person actually repents of his sins and he puts his trust and faith in Jesus, that when Jesus died on the cross for his sins, it was a satisfactory payment for the price that he owed to God. When a person trusts that Jesus has done that for him, then God actually declares us to be righteous in his sight. That's justification. God literally changes our status from guilty to righteous, even though we're not righteous. It's Jesus' life and perfect obedience being credited to our account. And Jesus' death is counted as our own death. And so it's as if we have already paid the price for our sins because that payment is in our account, but it was made by Jesus. And so the Bible is saying here that we have an eternal redemption in Christ because it has been secured forever by the blood of Jesus. You see, this is what Paul's doing. He's beginning to answer that question for us. How can we be sure? How can I know? I want to know how can we be sure that the salvation we have now is a permanent salvation? Well, here's what I want you to understand, folks. One of the reasons is because the Father will not allow the Son's blood to be shed in vain. That's something that needs to have all of us saying amen. You want to trust in something? You want to build some confidence today? Do not look to yourself. You look to this fact alone. The Father will not allow the Son's blood to be shed in vain. Many of you know uh, parts of my testimony. Some of you know all of my testimony, but... Uh, for those of you who don't know, just a, a little bit of it, as I was in school in 2010, it was my first semester in North Greenville University, and uh, I dropped out at the end of that semester, the first one there, didn't even make it to exams, because I was, uh, suffered an injury that left me temporarily paralyzed on the neck down, on the right side down. So, I was out of school, and there's this whole big long story I'd be happy to tell you another time, but Suffice it to say that shortly after that traumatic injury, the Lord saved me. And he actually used that event in my life to bring me into salvation. And then not long after that, God actually called me into ministry. But here's the thing. Because I had dropped out of school, I had a bunch of unpaid student bills and a whole lot of student debt. And there was no way for me to pay that off. Uh, at the time, there's just nothing I could do. It was too much for me. But because the Lord had saved me and called me into ministry, I knew that I needed to go back to school in order to pursue my calling into ministry. Again, the greatest obstacle to that, though, was that debt that I couldn't take care of. And I kept telling people for, for so long at that point, if, if that debt could only be taken care of, then I would definitely go back to school and I would pursue my calling into ministry. Well, one day... A guy comes to me, 
a guy that I was actually serving with at a church at the time. And he pulls me aside in this room and he says, hey, uh, I want to talk to you about something. My wife and I have been talking about this. We've been praying about this. And uh, listen, we know that God's called you to ministry. We recognize it and we believe that he's going to do great things with your ministry and he's going to bless it. And we know that you need to go back to school in order to pursue that calling. So here's what we want to do. We want to give you our entire tax return this year that you can use that to pay off all your student bills and go back to school. I was floored. <laughs> I could not believe their generosity and their kindness that they had literally just done for me what I could not do for myself. They had taken care of the greatest obstacle of me actually going back to school and pursuing ministry. It was a huge gift of grace. Now I want you to think about this. The whole reason they gave me that money was to pay off that debt so that I would go to school and actually pursue ministry. That's the end goal of that gift, correct? Now here's what I want you to think about. What if I had taken that money and used it to pay off the debt, but then didn't go back to school and didn't pursue ministry? How much of a slap in the face would that have been to them? I mean, it would not have been the intended purpose of that money. In fact, they would have just given that money for no reason. How disrespectful and dishonoring would that have been to not actually follow through with the intended purpose of giving that gift? They would have given that money in vain. And in the same way, folks, let me tell you something. How dishonoring to Christ would it be if the Father allowed Him to die on the cross for us, to give His life for us, to pour out His blood for us, and then not ultimately save us on the last day. That's the whole reason Jesus died on the cross. Not so that we can have a one-day salvation, or a five-year salvation, or a ten-year salvation. When He died on the cross, He secured an eternal salvation. Meaning that we will always be saved. And so if the Father allows Him to shed His blood on the cross, but then doesn't ultimately save us on that last day, then Jesus would have shed His blood in vain. May it never be so. This is exactly what the Bible is teaching us here. It would make the death of Christ meaningless. You see, I don't think most people realize this today, but our eternal salvation is intimately tied to and connected to the very worth of Jesus Christ himself. And maybe you remember in Revelation chapter 5, there's this great scene. So, so remember it with me, okay? There's the Apostle John, and God has given him this great revelation. And he's looking there in heaven at the throne room and everything around it, and you remember what they see. There's a scroll, and it's sealed up, and no one can open it. And they look on in heaven and on earth and everywhere else in between, and no one was found to be worthy to come and take this scroll and to open its seals. And then they see Jesus, the Lamb of God who was slain. And this is what they begin to sing when they see Jesus in Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Now, pause. I want you to notice this, church. The, the heavenly hosts are saying that Jesus is worthy to take the scroll and open his seals, and they're going to give a reason. So pay very close attention to the reason Jesus is worthy to do this. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God 
from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall, will, guaranteed, gonna happen, reign on the earth. So don't miss what this is saying here. If Jesus did not truly and finally, ultimately, eternally ransom his people, if people can actually lose their salvation, if people will not reign on the earth with him, then Jesus will not be found worthy to open the scroll. That's exactly what the Bible is saying here. The Bible is saying that Jesus is worthy to open the scroll because he did truly and finally ultimately, eternally, ransom his people, and they will certainly reign with him forever on earth. Folks, the worth of Christ is at stake in our eternal salvation. If even one of God's people is lost, then Jesus will not be worthy to open the scroll. And so the Father himself ensures that that will not happen. The Father Himself ensures that not one of His people is lost. That we will be raised up on that last day. That we will dwell with Him and reign with Him forever because the Father will not allow the Son's blood to be shed in vain. Therefore, Christian, listen to me this morning. You can have confidence. You can have assurance that your salvation is secure and permanent and eternal because the Lamb will receive the reward of His sufferings. Amen. The Lamb will receive the reward. Jesus has already done the harder things, folks. He has died on the cross and shed His blood for our sin. You can be confident this morning that He's going to do the easier thing. He can protect you from the Father's wrath on the last day. And Paul gives us even more reason to have confidence I want you to notice what he says there in verses 10 and 11. He says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now you might be thinking, hey, pastor, Please don't spend too long on this. That sounds exactly like verse 9. And it's very similar, but there's a key difference. I want you to notice it there. Verse 9, the emphasis and the focus is on justification, which has to do with our right standing with God. But the focus of verses uh, 10 through 11 is on reconciliation, which has to do with our relationship with God. Justification is not reconciliation, but you need both of them for salvation. So uh, if you want a good way to think about this, say there was a man who was an alcoholic and a drug addict. And because of his addictions, he ruined his marriage, abused his children, and ultimately was estranged from his family. Well, life goes on. The children grow up. They get married, have kids of their own. And, and years go by, but the father finally turns his life around. He enters into rehab and gets clean for the very first time in his entire life. And then he goes to each one of his children and he expresses and confesses to his wrongdoing. He, he expresses his regret over all the decisions that he's made in life. And ultimately, he asks for their forgiveness. And imagine that the children say, hey, listen, it's in the past, okay? 
Uh, nothing can be done about it now. We're not happy that it happened, but it is in the past, and so we forgive you. Thank you for apologizing. But we can't just let you back into our lives like that. We forgive you. We're not going to hold it against you, but you're not welcome in our lives. You see, in that situation, the father had been forgiven by his children, but not reconciled to his children. He was right in their eyes at this point. A change of status had taken place, but they would have no ongoing relationship. And that's why we need both justification and reconciliation. Justification changes our status from guilty to righteous, but reconciliation is actually the closing of that chasm that we created between us and God by our sin. And Jesus is the one who actually closes that chasm. He bridges the chasm with his cross, and he brings us into a covenant relationship with God himself. And so once we have faith in Christ, we're no longer enemies of God. We're now friends of God and children of God through Christ. And the Bible says that because of that, we can have an assurance of final salvation. Because notice, Paul's using that same argument again, isn't he? From the greater to the lesser. He says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, the harder thing to do, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The easier thing to do. And so how does this give us confidence? Well, uh, this upcoming week will be Thanksgiving, and maybe you have seen what's become a pretty viral story. So about six years ago, there was a grandmother named Wanda who texted her grandson inviting him to Thanksgiving dinner. Nothing special yet. But it was the wrong number. So <laughs> her grandson had actually changed his number, and she was texting a random 17-year-old named Jamal. And when it was discovered that there was just two strangers texting back and forth, Jamal said, but hey, can I still come over for Thanksgiving? And Wanda said, of course you can, because, quote, grandmas feed everyone. So uh, Jamal went over to her house uh, that year for Thanksgiving, and it's actually become a yearly tradition ever since then. This year will be their sixth year doing this, and Wanda considers Jamal to be family at this point. Now, I want to put a hypothetical before you. Let's say that Jamal and his wife fall on hard times. They have no money, no food to eat, no place to stay. And his wife makes a suggestion and she says, hey, why don't you call Wanda? Why don't you give Wanda a call and just ask her if we can stay with her for a little bit? Why don't you ask her if she can give us something to eat, if, if she can take care of us just until we can get back on our feet? And imagine Jamal says, oh no, I can't do that. I can't do that. What if, what if she says no? I mean, I know we don't have anywhere else to turn to, but, but how can we be sure that if I call her, she's not just going to turn us away? How can we be sure that she'll actually take care of us? And his wife replies and says, I'm sure that if she fed you when she didn't even know you, she'll take care of you now that you're like family to her. Folks, that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He's saying, listen, church, we don't need to worry about Judgment Day. We don't need to worry about suffering the wrath of God on that day. Because if God saved us while we were enemies, of course He's going to save us now that we're His children. How could we doubt that for even one second? If He saved you when you hated Him, of course He's going to save you now that you love Him. 
If he saved us while we were enemies, of course he will certainly save us now that we're his children. And you can know this for certain because Paul says that we're saved by the life of Jesus, not just the death of Jesus, but the life of Jesus. And when he says that, what he's referring to is the fact that Jesus, having risen and ascended back to the right hand of the majesty of the glory on high, now ever lives to intercede before the throne of God for us. This is what the Bible says in Hebrews 7.25. Michael read this for us in our scripture reading time. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, folks, you want to know what Jesus is doing? Day and night, Jesus is interceding for us before the Father pleading his own blood over us. As often as we mess up, as often as we fall into sin again, as often as we fall short, Jesus is right there interceding for us, pleading for us. And so here's the point that Paul wants us to understand. The Savior who died in your place now lives to plead your case. And praise God for that. The Savior who died in your place place now lives to plead your case. And this is such a comforting and reassuring aspect of, of Jesus's ministry for his people. I mean, we even sang about this earlier. Do you remember the words to the hymn we sang earlier? Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Praise God for that. It's in fact, it's the same point that Paul made in Romans chapter 8. If you look in Romans 8 on the screen, the Bible says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies who can bring any charge against God's elect? Let the world talk about Christians. Let the devil condemn us. Let your own guilty conscience say what it wants to about you. None of the charges can stick because God is the one who justifies. And then it goes on, verse 34, who's to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In other words, church, no one is going to condemn you to the Father because the Son is standing right there pleading your case. Christian, you don't have to worry that God's going to condemn you on that last day because Jesus has spent every single moment of your salvation interceding for you and pleading His blood over you. There hasn't been a moment that you've been a Christian that Jesus has not been pleading your case before the Father. You see, the Father knows that you're not perfect. He knows that you mess up. He knows that we fail and we fall short, that we are a work in progress. But the most important thing that God knows about you is that if you are a Christian, you are covered by the blood of Jesus and that blood satisfies you see, when, the, when Jesus died on the cross in your place, He died for your sin, past, present, 
and future. Any future sin isn't going to surprise Jesus. He's not going to leave heaven and have to go back and find a new cross. When he died, he said, it is finished. All of the sin forever, thus securing an eternal redemption. And so therefore, Christian, for those who turn to faith in Christ, listen to me, there is no wrath left for you. It's been poured out on Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Jesus will spend your entire life reminding the Father of that fact and pleading your case before the throne of God. You see, the whole point of this first section in Romans 5 is it's not just to tell us about the, the wonderful benefits of salvation. It is doing that. But it's doing more than that. The whole point of this first section in Romans 5 is to actually assure us, assure Christians of our eternal salvation, that it is secure and nothing will ever take it away from us. And so see, this is what Paul is saying here this morning. How can we be sure that our salvation that we have now is a permanent salvation? Well, it's because we can be sure that our salvation is secure and permanent because it depends entirely on Christ and His work. That's how you can be certain. It has nothing to do with you and your perfection. It has nothing to do with you and how often you fail. You can be certain that the salvation you have in Christ today is secure and permanent because it depends entirely on Christ and His work. Jesus secured our salvation at, uh, with His death. He sustains our salvation with His life. He paid for our salvation at the cross. He preserves our salvation at the throne of God. Put simply, the God who calls you will keep you. And that is a comforting fact today. Because we are prone to wonder, aren't we, church? Prone to leave the God we love prone to fall back into that sin, prone to try to pull His hands off of us and tear ourselves apart. But the Bible says, you're not strong enough for that. You're not bad enough for that. You can't do that. The God who called you to salvation will keep you in salvation. You see, for the believers here this morning who worry about that judgment day, who worry about the final judgment, I want this to be a comfort to you this morning. Let this benefit of salvation put your mind and your heart at ease. Listen to me, God's already done the harder work. You can trust that He will certainly do the easier work. There has only been one child of God who has ever experienced the wrath of the Father. And listen, no child of God will ever have to do that again. It's been poured out on Jesus, and so you can find comfort and ease in Christ today. For the believers here this morning who constantly doubt their salvation, let this benefit of salvation assure you of your eternal security in Christ. If you don't hear anything else I say this morning, I want you to listen to me right now and hear this and take this with you. Your salvation does not depend on your perfect obedience and efforts. That's why we doubt our salvation. Who are we looking to, church? Ourselves. I'm not good enough. I've messed up. I've fallen into sin. I still do this. Your salvation doesn't depend on you. If it did, none of us would be saved. We'd have all lost our salvation long ago. And so you can be certain that you have eternal security in Christ because it does not depend on you or your perfect obedience. 
When your battle with sin beats you down and makes you doubt that you're truly saved, I want you to remember you can't lose something you were never responsible for. And listen to me, Jesus Christ is the one who is entirely responsible for your salvation. He obtained it and He sustains it. I mean, think back to the words of that hymn again. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. We know what that's like, don't we, church? Have you been there before? You've heard the voice of the enemy reminding you of all that sin, all that guilt, and you feel it within you, and the shame starts to build? Upward I look and see Him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. And praise God for that. So Christian, Jesus died once for all time, securing an eternal salvation so you can have security in Christ today. And listen, one final thing for those who are here this morning who have not yet trusted in Christ for salvation. I want you to know for certain that judgment day is coming. And it is entirely unavoidable. And I don't say that to scare you into making a decision today. Anybody here will tell you, I don't, I don't do that. That's not me. I don't want you to just make a rash decision and fill out a card because the Bible says you need to count the cost of following Jesus. And I'll just tell you what it'll cost you. It'll cost you everything. It'll cost you your friends. It can cost you your family. It'll cost you your life. It'll cost you your soul. But what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? So I don't say this to scare you. I say this to inform you. Judgment day is coming. It is unavoidable. And God is impartial. He will judge all people according to the standard of His own righteousness. And let me tell you, no amount of good behavior, good works, good activity, friendly smiles, church attendance, or religious activity can do anything for you on that day. The only way that you can have confidence today that you will make it safely through the final judgment is if all of your hope and trust is in Jesus Christ alone. His life, His death, His resurrection, and His mediation. It's all about Jesus. Everything. And so all your hope and all your trust must be in Him. Christians, if you're here this morning, we need to be rejoicing. Because we've been justified by faith in Christ, we are kept forever by God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.